Thank you, Zach. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Good morning, church. Let's begin with this. Investigate my life, O oh God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Uh, I know I've said this almost every week, but I think it's because it's true. My family, like a lot of you, have been on the road this summer. We'll be on the road again today as we take our two oldest kids to, uh, to Camp Deer Run. They're excited about that. I know a lot of you guys are excited about that as well. It's going to be a great week for those guys. Uh, but on the road, our family does different things to kind of pass the time when we're driving. And one of the things that we do, we, we've had these for a few years. We have three of these. They're called a road trip bingo. You ever played? You probably played bingo. Bingo's, you know, like B19. You put a dot on it, a blue dot or whatever, and you try to win. Road trip bingo is like that. You have to get five in a row to win. Uh, but there's things like, uh, you know, you have to find a, uh, a dog. You have to find a fire hydrant, not necessarily together. Um, you have to find, uh, thank you, uh, a church, uh, a do not enter sign. You know, there's all these different things you have to find. And I did a quick count uh, this week because we have three of these cards. And there's uh, about 19 different road signs uh, that are available to spot and find for road trip bingo on one of, one of these three cards. What I find interesting is that nowhere on any of these three cards is the road sign uh, that, that tells you it's okay to make a U-turn. And the only reason I find that fascinating is that's probably the one sign I look for and use the most. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but very often I find myself going in the wrong direction. I've missed my turn. I've missed my exit. So I've got to get off. I've got to find a place where I can find a sign like this, a sign that shows you it's okay to, to, to make a U-turn here to change directions and to go the other way. Some of you, and you know who you are, I'm not pointing any fingers, but you don't wait for a U-turn sign. Like if you discover you missed your exit, if you missed your turn, you just whoop around wherever you are. And it's because of people like you, we have this sign that says, no U-turn. And think about it. There's no other road sign that has this kind of marking. You know, no, do not turn around here. It's not okay. But some of you, and again, you know who you are. I've seen you on the interstate. You've missed your exit. And you look around to make sure there are no police in the area. And just a note, if you have to look around to make sure there's no police in the area, you probably shouldn't do whatever you're thinking. But you look around, you double check, and when you see it's, it's okay, you pull across the meeting of the interstate and you turn around and go the other way. You know, that's what you do. Uh, it made me wonder this week, are there times in your life, we've all done it when we're driving, but are there times in your life, are there times when you've had to make a U-turn? When, when, when what you're doing wasn't working, when the way you were living wasn't life-giving, when you realized, when you woke up one day and realized that we, all, we are the culmination of all of our choices and, and, and you wake up and you realize that where you are is not where you want to be, that your life is not the way you thought it would turn out, and, and, and all of a sudden you realize that this is not the life that you wanted to live. And you're contemplating this decision. Is it time to make a U-turn? You really have two choices, right? You can keep doing what you're doing and medicate the pain of your present reality however you choose to do that. Or you can change direction. But what nobody tells you is that changing direction means something has to die. What nobody tells you on the front end is that if you're going to change direction, if you're going to make a U-turn in your life, it means that you have to abandon something to then go this direction. 
That in order to change direction, something has to die. You have to abandon something. Something has to go away so that something new can live, so that something new can emerge. And this is exactly what Jesus is about to ask his disciples to do. In fact, in the text, the story we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to ask his disciples to make three U-turns in a row. And it's a really big deal. Not only for those original disciples, but I think for us as well. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bible app, you can open that up. In fact, like Jason said earlier, uh, we do have the version Bible app. So if you use that like I do, you can open that up. You can click on uh, more than events, then Riverside, touch that. And you'll see there uh, the scripture we're going to look at today along with some of my notes, as well as small group questions and other resources. I hope you'll find it helpful. All that's available there on the version Bible app. At this point in the story in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is all but finished with his Galilean ministry. He, he, he's all but done with, with what he's going to do. And at this point, his direction is set towards Jerusalem. His direction is set towards the cross. And he's about to start sharing this plan. Start, he's, he's about to start revealing this, 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 his plan with his disciples that from this point on, their trajectory is going to be towards this cross. But in their defense, they don't have any context for this. They don't have a category where Messiah and crucifixion go together. That's not the way it's supposed to work. When they thought Messiah, they thought king. They thought warrior king, military leader. They thought a high priest who mediates between us and God. They thought incredible prophet. They thought someone who came in power and authority. They had no context. They had no category for Messiah and crucifixion. So you can imagine as Jesus is about to tell them for the very first time what's, what, what's about to happen next as they make this change in direction towards the cross that they're just really caught in complete confusion. And he's going to ask them to make three U-turns. Here's the first. In Mark chapter 8, we'll start in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and they went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking along, This is the movement they're making. He asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, you know, some say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're you're one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say I am? Now, this is one of those verses, or one of those phrases you may want to underline or highlight in your Bible, because this may be the most important question in all of Scripture. It may be the most important question Jesus ever asked. I know it's the most important question you'll ever answer. Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? And this is the first U-turn Jesus is asking his disciples to make. Who is Jesus? Who am I? Do you believe, like a lot of people believe, that I'm John the Baptist, who, by the way, was just recently beheaded? Do you think, like a lot of people believe, Do you believe like a lot of people believe that I am Elijah, come back from the dead to come and bring you a powerful word from God as as a prophet? Or do you believe like a lot of other people believe that uh, that I am one of the other prophets, come to give you a word or do something incredible in these days? Who do you say I am? What do you believe about me? Now remember, these guys, they've been with Jesus for almost three years now. They've heard him teach. They've seen him do things that you just cannot explain. He has healed people. I mean, they were blind, now they can see. They were lame, now they can walk. Uh, They've seen him feed the masses with only like small amounts of food. 
They've sat by the campfire at night and they've asked him question after question. And Peter, reflecting, I think, on all that he's seen and heard over the past few years, he's the first to speak up and Peter says these incredible words. He says, you, you are the Messiah. Peter's the first to make the U-turn here and say, I know what a lot of people believe about you, but this is what we believe. We believe you are Messiah. And Messiah was a Hebrew word. It literally meant anointed. In Greek, it's the word Christ. And all throughout Israel's history, different people were anointed for different reasons. Priests were anointed to be mediators between uh, people, the people of God and God, to mediate their sin, to help them with their sin problem. Prophets were, were anointed to speak a word, to give the people the word of God. Uh, Kings were anointed to lead the people of God. Different people were anointed throughout Israel's history. And so again, when they think Messiah, when they think anointed one, they're thinking someone that God has sent in power to be their priest, to be their prophet, to be their king, to be their unequivocal leader, to deliver them. They're thinking deliverer. They're thinking savior. They're living up under Roman oppression and they are desperate for deliverance. And if you've ever lived up under any kind of oppression, if you've ever been desperate for any kind of deliverance, You have just a taste of what these people were thinking of and hoping for. When they thought Messiah, they were thinking, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And what we're thinking here is that you're going to deliver us. And this is where Jesus wants them to make another U-turn. In verse 31, he says this. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. This is the second U-turn. It's not just who is Jesus. It's what does it mean for Jesus to be Messiah? And you can just imagine their faces as they're experiencing this moment and hearing these words from Jesus. Half of them, their jaws have hit the floor. The other half, their heads are cocked sideways or squinting at Jesus in complete confusion. It's like, again, it doesn't compute. They have no category for this. Jesus, what what are you talking about? Jesus, Messiah, rejected, suffer, and die this, this doesn't make any sense. Like you're speaking gibberish. We don't understand what you're talking about. This again, this is not what we've been waiting for. This is not what we've been thinking about. Over the past two or three years, we've been following you and we've seen all that you have done. And you've got to imagine inside of every one of them, this excitement has just been building over time as they've seen them feed the masses, heal the sick, do incredible miracles. Over and over again, they're thinking, yes, yes, yes. And can you imagine just there, just how giddy they were to think, we found him. Now, you and I know that Jesus found them. They didn't find him. But again, they're thinking, we found him. We have found the Messiah. We have found God's Messiah. And not only that, we're a part of his inner circle. This is un- this unlikely band of disciples. We have found him. And now we're a part of this inner circle of God's Messiah. And the excitement is building as they are living under suffering, living under Roman oppression, knowing that now they have found God's Messiah. So deliverance that we've been waiting for and praying for for hundreds of years is now right around the corner. And can you imagine, if you're looking for a candidate to be your Messiah, 
Who better than Jesus? Right? Who better than Jesus? You're looking for a military leader? You're looking for a warrior king? Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, the army's hungry? We got a couple pieces of bread. We're good. I can feed all of them. Oh, wait, we've got some wounded from the battle. Jesus can just walk by and heal them, and they're ready to go the next day. Oh, wait, there's a storm on the way, and it's going to prevent our attack. I'll just redirect that storm with my words and either make it go away, or I'll make it just thunder and lightning over them all night. Oh, you want to do a sneak attack and cross the river tonight and and, and invade the enemy's camp? Forget the boats. We'll just walk on water with Jesus. Can you imagine a better person to be your commander-in-chief if you're looking for a Messiah than Jesus? If you're looking for a prophetic king, is there anybody better? Is there any doubt that he can call down fire from heaven? Is there any doubt he can start and stop the rain? Is there any doubt he can open your eyes to all of the angel armies? If you're looking for a high priest, we've seen this man forgive sin. He can do it all. We have found God's Messiah. But what Jesus is about to say is that I need you to make a U-turn in the way you're thinking and the way you're believing about Messiah. Because, Because the way of the Messiah is so completely different than anything you may have anticipated. Messiah is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Peter was able to make the first U-turn and confess that Jesus, you're Messiah, you are Christ, you are God's anointed one. But he wasn't too quick to make the second turn. In verse 32, as Jesus talked about this openly with his disciples, you get the sense that Jesus is having a lot of explaining to do. Peter, being the good friend that he is, took Jesus over to the side and began to reprimand him for saying such things. You can just imagine Peter telling Jesus, Jesus, you got to cut this out. Like, this, this isn't going to sell. We can't market this. this is, people aren't going to follow you anymore. This is not what we bought into. This is not what we were thinking. You got to stop. This is not making any, this is not what we've been hoping for. This is not what we've been praying for. Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, but you got to stop it. There's no rejection. There's no suffering. There's no death. I know it's not going to be easy what we're about to do as we, you know, you know experience deliverance and, and overthrow Rome and, and do all that we want to do. But, but you got you to start talking differently. This is not working. And Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples because they were all thinking it too. And then he reprimanded Peter. And he uses some strong words here. He says, get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Ouch. Get behind me, Satan. You know, the word Satan literally means adversary. In other words, Jesus is, I just imagine him in this moment, steering through Peter towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And he's like, get behind me. I don't need anything between me and my mission. 
I don't need anything between me and the cross. I don't need anything between me and what's about to happen because it's way too important. The mission is clear. Our trajectory is set. This is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die, and he is going to raise on three dead. I don't even think they heard that part. They got so caught up in rejection, suffering, and death. They didn't have a category for that, much less resurrection. I don't need anyone standing between me And what it means for me to be Messiah. And then Jesus is going to ask him to make one more hard U-turn. And I think it's the most difficult of all. In verse 34, then calling the crowd to join his disciples. Now he's got everybody around him. He said this. If any of you, if any of you wants to be my follower... If anybody in the room, if anybody within the sound of my voice wants to to be my disciple, you must turn. You got to make a turn. You have to turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross and follow me. Not only is Jesus redefining what it means to be Messiah, Jesus is completely and radically redefining what it means. To follow him. I, lo- I love the way this one translation of the Bible, the, the Orthodox Jewish Bible translates this verse. It says it this way. Let him make denial of himself and take up his tree of self-sacrifice and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's going to involve a cross. And bear in mind that the people he was talking to knew all too well the shame, the torture, and the brutality of the cross. Romans used it frequently to execute people. What I find really interesting is this story is recorded by Mark, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest followers. And Mark was writing this in a time where another man who claimed to be a Messiah, Judas of Galilee, had raised up an insurrection against Rome. And Rome does what Rome always does. Power does what power always does. It killed it. And they didn't just kill Judas. They killed 2,000 of his followers. And they lined the streets with crosses. Nero would crucify Christians in his garden and light them on fire to light up the night. The readers of this gospel, the original readers of these words, when they were reading these words, and they hear Jesus say, take up a cross and follow me, it it didn't inspire them. It struck fear to the core. What are you talking about? Take up a tree of self-sacrifice. That was a real thing. Because to take up a cross... It literally meant sacrificing everything else. I love the way one scholar, Lamar Williamson, I was reading this week, talked about it. He said this. He said, precisely those who profess faith in Jesus as the Christ, as Messiah, as the Anointed One, are the ones who misunderstand his mission and who must now be asked again if they really want to follow him. And I think that's why this is such 
such a good thing for us to look at today. Because if we're honest, a lot of us, a lot of you have been following Jesus for a long time. And maybe it's gotten comfortable. Maybe it's gotten routine. Maybe it's gotten easy. Maybe it's not complicated anymore. And I think no matter if you think you're the smartest person in the room or you think you've been following Jesus for a long time and you have it all figured out, I think every one of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus have to ask ourselves this question every single day. Are we willing to follow Jesus today again? Are we willing to take up a cross, a tree of self-sacrifice and follow Jesus again today? Are, we, are you willing Are you willing to put your dreams aside? Are you willing to put your desires aside, your preferences aside, your opinions aside? Are you willing to sacrifice whatever it is you hold most dear to take up a cross, a burden, a tree of self-sacrifice and follow your Savior to crucifixion where you will die? For the sake of others and the glory of God. Are you willing to do that? I've shared this before, but it's one of my favorite quotes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, pastor, teacher, and a key player in the, in the rise up and revolt against Hitler and the Nazi regime. But he once wrote this in a book he entitled, which is a great title, The Cost of Discipleship, because discipleship, it costs something. And let me just read this to you if, you, if you don't mind. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ and death of the old man at its call. Jesus summons. His summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all of our affections and lust. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as we, as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Christ Jesus, means both death and life. And that's, that's the secret. That the call of Jesus is a call to come and die. But it's also a call to come and live. But you can't experience the abundant life of Jesus. You can't experience the resurrected life of Jesus unless you first come and you die. I love the way Dallas Willard once said it. He didn't say, he said, Jesus didn't die so you wouldn't have to. Jesus died so you could die with him. The call of Jesus is to come and to die so that then you can come and live the resurrected life, the abundant life that Jesus is calling us towards. 
But in order to do that, in order to make that U-turn in your life, you have, you have to be willing to abandon the attachments of this world. That to be a disciple of Jesus has to cost you something. And Jesus says, don't let anything keep you from giving up everything to follow me. Don't let anything keep you from giving up everything to follow me. And you know what? I think in the moment, I don't think the disciples got it. In fact, I'm pretty sure they still had no clue what he was talking about. But they would. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, crucified in Greece. James, beheaded. John, was exiled. Every one of his followers, except for Judas, as you know, literally gave their life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but that is just really challenging to me. What does my faith cost me? What does your faith cost you? I have to begin to think that if if my faith doesn't cost me anything, who am I really following? If your faith doesn't cost you anything, then who are you really following? Because it costs something to follow Jesus. Some of you, you know because you have paid a price. You are paying the price. You, right now, you are living into this life. And for that, I want you to know you are my heroes. And I so look up to some of you in this room who I know what you're going through. And I know what you're giving up for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it, it just inspires awe in me. But it challenges me as well. What does it cost to follow Jesus? What needs to die? What do you need to abandon? What do you need to let go of? So you and I, so we can follow Jesus Christ. This is the call of Christ. It's not a call just to live in the shadow of the cross. It's it's a call to turn from our selfish desires and to take up the cross and to follow Jesus. Jesus. And if we've ever made it sound like it was any different to follow Jesus, I know what we try to do. We try to make church as easy and as accessible as possible. We try to make living your faith as doable and and controllable as possible. But the truth of the matter is, the, the honest truth is that following Jesus means carrying a cross and it costs something to be his disciple. And only you can answer the question, what price are you paying? What are you letting go of? What are you abandoning? What do you need to let go of? Where do you need to make a U-turn in your life so that you can follow Jesus? Church, if you would, let's, let's stand. Um, in the spirit of complete transparency, uh, I was running this week and I fell. And so if you shake my hands, I'll probably wince. I've got marks on my hands. That one's pretty bad. So during communion, Ella Grace, I mean Emma Love, my youngest daughter, grabbed me and says, Dad, your hands look like Jesus when he was, I was like, I know, I know. <gasps> Just so you know, I, I wasn't trying to crucify myself this week. I, I fell and the concrete won. But I am trying every week to live a cruciform life, to live a cross shaped life. And I can get really excited about what could happen if we as a church 
took on that call to live a cruciform life. If we together decide we want to live a cross-shaped life, we want to be a cross-shaped church, that we're going to put everything to death, that we're going to abandon everything that is not Jesus, that is not the mission of Jesus, to follow him and him alone. We're going to die to everything. We're going to abandon everything, whatever that may mean, whatever that may entail, so that we can die with Jesus and point others to the only God who saves. And we can't end today with this kind of text and not make this invitation. If, if you are in the room today and for whatever reason up to this point in your life, you have, not, you have not answered that question. Who do you say I am? If you have not declared that Jesus is your Messiah, if you have not made that decision to walk through the waters of baptism and to die with Christ, to be buried with him and raised, resurrected to the new life, the abundant life of Jesus, man, today would be an awesome day to see that happen. This year at Riverside, we've seen 14 people die to themselves and be resurrected by the power and the Spirit of Almighty God. Amen? Man, let's get 15 today. But for the rest of us, if you've made that decision, but for whatever reason you've turned back at some point or in some way, let me just share these words of the psalmist again. And maybe today this could be your prayer to God. Investigate my life, oh God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine me and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done wrong or maybe if there's anything that I'm holding on to, if there are any attachments I have not let go of so that I can take hold of Christ. And then guide me on the road to eternal life. May we be, may we be disciples of Jesus who are committed to the cross of Christ and the way of the cross that remains rejection, suffering, death, and oh, by the way, resurrection. Let's sing.